Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to get to the news of the week. So let's get into it. Derek, let's start with some climate news and the flooding in Pakistan. What's been going on there? Yeah, always, always good to start on a cheery note. Um, a very heavy monsoon rains, uh, something like I think the estimate I saw was 190% of the 30 year average that Pakistan uh, has re- received. Um, it's, uh, inundated Pakistan. It's flooded a large segment of the country. Climate change, uh, the climate change minister there, Sherry Rahman, uh, told Reuters that a third of the country is underwater right now. I think that was a bit of an exaggeration, but then she, she, she sort of, uh, suggested that a third of the country could be underwater by the time this is all over. And that may not be, uh, such an exaggeration. Roads and bridges have been washed away making it harder to get aid to the more than 33 million people affected by the disaster. Hundreds of thousands of them are living outdoors without access to food, clean water, shelter or basic health care. At least uh, 1,100 people, I've I've seen estimates of um, 1,200 or even more, have been killed over the past couple of months because of these rains, because of the flooding millions of people, tens of millions at this point, I think 30 or more million uh, people have been displaced. Uh, Damage is estimated to be in the $10 billion and up range. Um, And if you look, the the, the most striking thing anybody can do, obviously this is an audio format, so we can't do it here, but there is satellite imagery of uh, the Sindh region, which has received most of the rainfall and is where the uh, the Indus River kind of flows through and empties out. Satellite imagery shows essentially the creation of a massive lake in this region uh, that didn't exist a year ago, uh, that exists now. Um, so just, yeah, really a horrifying situation in Pakistan. Um, the UN has uh, launched an appeal for $160 million for immediate emergency relief efforts. Uh, that's probably not going to be enough, even if they get all of it, uh, because of damage to farmland and what's that's what that's going to do for food in terms of food shortages and things like that. Um, as I said, the, the the ultimate cleanup here, the ultimate recovery, could be in the you know ten billion plus range. Um, so really, just just terrible stuff going on here, and uh, absolutely caused by climate change. This is there's no question that this is a uh, you know, one of these impacts of climate change that we keep saying are here now, uh, they're not, you know, coming by the end of the century. It's it's with us right now. So let's move on to the Greenland ice sheet and what's been going uh, on with that. So, yeah, this is another happy story. There's a new study uh, in Nature, uh, the journal Nature, that uh, suggests that a fair amount of sea level rise due to kind of calving off of the Greenland ice sheet is already locked in. It doesn't matter what humanity does at this point in terms of reducing greenhouse gases, uh, reducing emissions. We've already emitted enough to to lock in. I think about 10 inches is the estimate of the study of sea level rise just from what is called zombie ice. These are chunks of ice that's, that are still attached technically to the sheet, but they're no longer being fed by 
glaciers. So they're basically orphaned uh, and they will eventually, again, no matter, pretty much no matter what uh, we do, uh, they will calve off and, and fall into the ocean and thereby raise uh, uh, the sea level. The, the study estimates that, you know, if things go in the worst case direction, uh, the Greenland ice sheet, which is really, you know, Greenland and Antarctica are the two uh, ice sheets that that feed most of uh, or will feed most of sea level rise. Uh, we could be looking at 30 inches of sea level rise just from Greenland uh, by the end of the century. So, uh, you know, again, not not good news. Uh, sorry to start everybody off on a downer here. Speaking of other news, what's going on in Baghdad? Uh, so on Monday, uh, there were uh, protests by Muqtada al-Sadr's uh, followers who have been, as people uh, may know, have been occupying the uh, parliament building uh, for weeks now, uh, staging a sit-in protest. They took that sit-in protest to the government office building, so where the cabinet, the prime minister, etc., meet on Monday, and uh, things turned violent. It's not entirely clear who or what caused this, but there was a counter-protest by the uh, coordination framework, who are Sadr's uh, rivals within the Iraqi Shia community, and that you know Iraqi security forces got involved, and at some point uh, somebody started firing shots, and things turned violent. The last estimate I've seen was uh, somewhere around uh, thirty people were killed, dozens, scores, uh, you know, four hundred plus, I think, wounded, and the political fallout is is yet to be sort of uh, sort of seen. I mean, Sadr has. Sadr announced his retirement from politics on Monday. Now, this is something he's done many times uh, in the past, so I don't think it's going to take. That seems to have sparked the protest, or if it didn't spark the protest, kind of you know raised tensions to the point where it, uh, things got violent. He's now ordered his protesters to leave the green zone, even the ones who were you know occupying the parliament building and had been for weeks. Uh, by all accounts, they have done that, but. The tension here, the underlying dynamic is still Sadr versus the coordination framework. Sadr, um, you know, sort of, uh, again, grandiosely pulled all of his elected ministers of parliament out of parliament in, uh, I believe, June uh, in protest because the coordination framework was blocking his efforts to form a government. Um, so these guys are, are still, and he's now blocking the coordination framework's efforts to form a government. So there's still kind of this back and forth dynamic. On Tuesday evening, the Prime Minister of Iraq, who is almost wholly irrelevant at this point, the caretaker Prime Minister, Mustafa al-Kadhimi, uh, seemed to blame much of the violence from Monday on the coordination framework, which in includes the political parties that are affiliated with Iraq's popular mobilization militias. Um, his suggestion was that the militias disobeyed his orders to stay out of the green zone, uh, technically, the, the PMU, the Popular Mobilization Units, are state security forces, so they should probably follow the Prime Minister's orders, but they're politically essentially immune from any repercussions, so they don't really have to. Uh, so he accused them of, of disobeying his orders to go not to go into the Green Zone and then disobeying his orders not to fire on the demonstrators. So uh, he seemed to leave most of the blame at their feet. But the uh, as I say, the political dynamic here is unchanged. Sadr, uh, you know, claims he's retired from politics. I don't think he really is. It's more, it's another kind of gesture that's intended to rile things up, uh, but a very tense situation. And, and you know, this 
stalemate that Iraq has been in since October. Uh, you know, the, the election was in October. They still don't have a government. Uh, that's likely to continue. Uh, there have been more calls for a new election, which is what Sadr uh, wants. That's been his main demand here. But um, I, I don't see uh, the coordination framework at this point kind of caving into him, especially after after what happened on Monday. So let's move a little bit to the West and, and talk about what's been going on in Tripoli. Uh, yes. So uh, again, as people uh, know, there is a political crisis in Tripoli that has involved, uh, among other things, the appointment of two different prime ministers. Abdul Hamid Debeba still leads the uh, kind of UN-produced or UN-mediated uh, national unity government that uh, emerged a couple of years ago. Uh, but the parliament in eastern Libya several months back uh, named Fatih Bashaga, former interior minister, as the new prime minister because they argued that Debeba's mandate had expired and he was no longer uh, legitimately prime minister. Uh, they're still both claiming to be prime minister. And uh, Debeba is in Tripoli. He's ensconced in Tripoli. His, his militia backers, his supporters are uh, defending Tripoli, making sure that they retain control of Tripoli. And that symbolically, obviously, is a, a bit of a stone in uh, Fatih Bashaga's shoe, I would say. It is the residents of Tripoli who are paying the price. They are the victims. The population of Tripoli is nearly three million people, and they don't want either government. Uh, so what happened on Saturday, it seems like Bashaga and his followers attempted to fight their way into the city. Um, and so factions, you had militia factions aligned with 1 p.m., uh, battling factions aligned with the other one. Uh, at least 32 people were killed, uh, many of them civilians, I think over half civilians. Uh, again, dozens of people wounded. Uh, there aren't many confirmed details about exactly what happened, but I think uh, you can draw some broad conclusions. Debeva and his followers remain in control of Tripoli, but Bashaga is still out there and there's no resolution to this. A new election, or an, an election, I shouldn't say new election, Libya hasn't had elections in some time now. Uh, but an election would uh, solve this, presumably, because you'd have a new parliament who could appoint a new prime minister, all of it, you know, sort of legitimate under the law. Uh, nobody seems to want, none of the, the major players here, the political elites, seem to want to do that because uh, I suspect they fear losing whatever power they have. Uh, so, again, another situation like Iraq that is sort of festering and, and periodically turns violent, turned very violent this weekend, probably as violent as it's gotten uh, so far. Uh, so something to to watch to see if this kind of spirals out of control. Speaking of wars, the Ethiopian war has appeared to expand, Derek. So tell us about that. Yes. So uh, as people may know, um, last week there was renewed fighting in northern Ethiopia, kind of in the southern Tigray region and the um, parts of the Amhara and Afar regions that border Tigray. The government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front um, accused one another of starting things. We still don't really have great details on, or you know, great information to uh, either confirm or, or deny either of those claims. There have been a couple now uh, incidents of Ethiopian airstrikes on Makella uh, with civilian casualties involved, at least in the first one. I'm not sure about the second one. What's happened now is on Wednesday, uh, the Ethiopian government accused the TPLF of opening up a new front in the conflict. And this appears to be in the region that is known as Western Tigray. Uh, Western Tigray is also claimed by the regional government of Amhara, uh, the Amhara region. 
they have a long standing kind of dispute over whether this is legitimately Amhara land or Tigray land. The Amhara claim that the previous Ethiopian government prior to the accession of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, uh, which was more or less dominated by the TPLF, that that government gave this region to, to Tigray uh, as a, you know, as a sort of way to, to take it away from Amhara and kind of coalesce their, their own power. The Tigray reject this and, and insist that the, the area has always been part of Tigray or part of the Tigrayan people's kind of uh, regular domain. Uh, so that was Wednesday. Uh, there's now reports on Thursday uh, that were, you know, I saw just before we recorded here, that the Ethiopian military and the Eritrean military, which has been allied with Ethiopia through this conflict uh, with the TPLF, have opened up their own new front in northern Tigray, uh, so I don't know. I don't have a lot of details on this, uh, but the TPLF accused both countries of having started a, a new kind of new front in this war, which is this is particularly troubling if it's true. Northern Tigray is home to a lot of uh, or a number of displaced persons camps, uh, displaced Eritreans specifically uh, who crossed the border years ago. They were already in a situation where uh, they weren't getting humanitarian assistance because the roads had been cut off by the conflict. Uh, it was very difficult to get to these camps already. They're, they're sort of in a remote, uh, in remote parts of northern Tigray. Uh, so if there's, if the conflict is now extended into that region, that, that just makes things, uh, you know, potentially worse from, from the standpoint of, uh, the humanitarian situation, which was already, uh, horrifying. So speaking of more wars, it's quite a war world these days. Let's move to Ukraine and let's start with talking about the, um, IAEA inspectors arriving in the country. Yes. So for some time now, uh, people may know the uh, there's been some controversy, some concern over uh, the fate of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. Uh, there have been the Russian military is occupying the plant. There have been allegations of shelling back and forth. The Ukrainians accusing the Russians of uh, manufacture, trying to manufacture a crisis here. The Russians accusing the Ukrainians of sort of, um, you know, dangerously targeting Russian forces on the grounds of the, the nuclear plant. The chances of a disaster are, are not super high, but they're high enough, uh, to, to raise concerns. And so the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, ha has been agitating for a couple of weeks to send an inspection team to the plant that would check safety features, make sure that everything is sort of uh, okay. There were a couple of instances, I think last week, when the, the plant was disconnected from the rest of the Ukrainian power grid, which raises uh, its own set of concerns about whether or not the safety features of the plant are still functional. They may not be. There, there's indications that they, they kicked in no problem, but still it would be reassuring to have uh, the IAEA kind of inspect these features and make sure they're okay. Uh, so the inspectors arrived at the plant on Thursday uh, after, you know, heated negotiations with the Ukrainians, the Russians, the UN, everybody you know, kind of, I think Turkey got involved in sort of a mediating capacity. Um, they finally arrived on Thursday. What's unclear is how long they're going to stay. I've seen reports that part of the team has already been observed leaving the site. So I don't know if this is a one day thing. Uh, the director of the IAEA, Rafael Grossi, has suggested it could be a few days, that's what that was the quote that he, uh, he offered. What would follow that would be negotiations on a more regular inspections routine or even potentially a continuous IAEA presence on the site. Uh, the latter might 
also, I mean, I presume they would also want some kind of a demilitarized zone uh, around the plant if they had IAEA personnel there continuously. So um, that could be a way to kind of backdoor some uh, some sort of protection for the site just by placing personnel there permanently. But again, it would have to come uh, with the acquiescence of the Russians and the Ukrainians. And, and at this point, uh, I, I just don't know if they're going to get that. And let's also talk about the counteroffensive that appears to be uh, starting right now. Right. I, we should mention this. Um, again, details are um, minimal at this point, but the Ukrainian military appears to have started its long-promised counteroffensive in southern Ukraine, which is primarily directed at um, Kherson Oblast. Um, there have been reports of heavy fighting, mostly artillery battles. The Ukrainians say that they are destroying bridges, they're destroying supply lines, they're destroying depots, things behind the Russian lines. Uh, the Russians insist that the Ukrainians are failing in every possible way and that they've taken heavy casualties. Um, you know, none of this seems to be confirmable. I can't find any, uh, you know, anything that's, uh, uh suggest anything one way or the other, but it, it is going on. Um, clearly, there is uh, increased fighting in southern Ukraine. And con uh, consequently, I guess, uh, I mean, I want to draw a complete uh, kind of connection here, but uh, there does not seem to be much activity in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, which had been uh, sort of the epicenter, the locus of most of the fighting in this conflict. Uh, so this seems to be the new hotness in, in the Ukraine war, I guess, uh, or the new, the new the focus of the fighting is is on Kherson. The only thing I can I can say here is you know you got to wait and see what actually transpires and and it, uh, you know relying on the word of the Ukrainians and how great things are going or the word of the Russians and uh, you know how great things are going from their perspective is probably not very productive. So speaking of Russia, the EU has suspended the visa program. So tell us about that one, Derek. Yeah, there have been calls for a, a few weeks now coming mostly from countries that border, EU countries that border Russia, uh, primarily Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, uh, for a an EU-wide ban, essentially, on travel visas for Russians. And, you know, not only a ban on, on new visas moving forward, but actually kind of rescinding visas or suspending visas that have already been issued. The EU foreign ministers group uh, met on Wednesday and agreed uh, that they would suspend a deal that's in place that that sort of streamlines the process for Russian citizens to obtain EU travel visas. Um, but they did not agree to impose a ban on visas or to rescind the visas that have already been issued. So it was sort of a, a compromise measure. France and, and Germany in particular have been arguing against uh, something like a total ban. Uh, what is likely to happen now is that the four governments in question, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, will do something on their own, either as a group or individually will impose their own bans on Russians holding EU visas from entering their countries. Uh, Estonia has already been really kind of planning something like this. They expect to have a uh, an almost blanket restriction on the entry of Russians within a matter of weeks. About 5,000 people cross every day, but Russians holding Estonian tourist visas won't be allowed through unless they're exempted for humanitarian reasons. The advocates of this idea of banning Russians from entering the EU have been talking about, you know, in sort of vague terms about security threats that Russian citizens might pose to EU member states, but 
really there's been an underpinning of like, you know, these, these people are going on vacation uh, while their country is invaded Ukraine. And it's, it's basically a collective punishment thing, I believe, uh, which doesn't speak well to the, uh, you know, any intention of kind of winning over the Russian people and, and convincing them that uh, Vladimir Putin is, is the devil or whatever, and that they need to, to move on from him. Uh, if that was ever a goal, this is the kind of policy that, that uh, you know, is going to prevent that from happening. And uh, let's move uh, all the way around the world now to the Solomon Islands, which has uh, taken some some steps to deny the United States what it wants to do. So, Derek, what's been going on on the Solomons? Uh, yes. So the background to this is the Solomons, uh, Solomon Prime Minister Manasa Sogavare, a few months ago, signed a sort of joint security arrangement with China that the United States and Australia in particular uh, have been kind of fretting about ever since, uh, arguing that it's going to lead to a, a Chinese naval base in the Solomons, which, you know, would be, I guess, um, you know, terrible. We can't allow a Solomon Islands gap, et cetera, uh, as part of the, the Cold War. Um, there was a story last week that, that emerged that uh, basically Solomon's authorities had denied permission or had just not given permission for a couple of naval ships. Well, it was a Coast Guard. It was a U.S. Coast Guard ship, the Oliver Henry, and then a Royal Naval vessel, both of whom were in the uh, Pacific doing a sort of uh, sweep for illegal fishing. Uh, there's there's a, been an operation in the South Pacific going on uh, for some time to kind of uh, find poachers, illegal fishermen, etc. That, that these ships on different occasions, I think, uh, had radioed to the Solomons and asked for permission to dock for refueling, etc., and had never, just never heard back. And so they had to make uh, other arrangements on the fly. On so on Tuesday, um, after all of this, you know, had had emerged, Sogavare announced that uh, his government was banning all naval vessels from docking in the Solomons until they came up with new processes. He, this is what he uh, what he said: new processes for doing so, for handling those requests. Uh, according to Sogavare, there have been several instances where naval vessels from other countries have sort of entered Solomon's waters without getting clearance ahead of time. And so he's trying to uh, put the kibosh on that. This, you know, still kind of feeds into uh, U.S. fears, I think, or at least, you know, the blobs fears that we're losing the Solomon Islands to China. Uh, and that that's led to, that led to an article, a piece in the national interest by uh, a guy named Julian Spencer Churchill, which I just want to, you know, make people aware of. I don't think it, we need to d- dig into it too much. But uh, the headline is "Don't Rule Out Intervention in the Solomon Islands." So basically, uh, the argument for the U.S. and Australia to invade the Solomon Islands uh, and uh, ensure that its leaders don't go over to China. I suppose uh, it's fascinating. I mean, just the first two paragraphs of this piece. The first paragraph goes into uh, some history and detail of the principle of self-determination. And then the second paragraph explains why if, if you're a democracy, you're, a, you're allowed to violate the principle of self-determination and invade countries that don't uh, kind of go along with whatever program you want. It's, it's really uh, just an amazing piece. It's sort of uh, as, as blob pieces, uh, as blob uh, writing goes, it is uh, one of the most let's say, illuminating that I think you're, you're going to find these days. So just uh, uh, very interesting uh, things. And all, uh, again, uh, you know, because of the Solomon Islands, which I don't want to diminish the Solomon Islands, but 
really is this like what we're going to go to war for is this going to be the 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 thing that triggers world war three I, I, I you know not it's not even going to be taiwan now it's going to be the solomons just uh, just a lot to digest there and derek let's end on the pentagon's new initiative to minimize civilian casualties what is it how have people responded to it let us know uh, yes. So the Pentagon announced this was, uh, I believe, last week. Uh, yes. Announced a new program, a new initiative uh, to reduce or minimize civilian casualties in overseas U.S. military operations. Uh, there are many details to it, one of which is the creation of something called the Civilian Protection Center of Excellence. I, I kid you not. Essentially, my understanding of the plan is that it calls for more deliberation, more kind of intervention uh, ahead of any, let's say, drone strike or special forces operation, airstrike, whatever, um, more consideration of, you know, is this, are we sure that we're, you know, firing on, on a, a target that we actually want to hit? Uh, are we sure there are no civilians in the area? Some of this comes out of that uh, strike last year, that drone strike last year in Kabul, which supposedly took out some uh, Islamic State mastermind bomber and wound up it took out, you know, a, a, a family, uh, totally civilian family. So, uh, you know, it, it emerges from things like that. Uh, the idea is to do more pre, you know, pre-strike consideration of these kinds of issues and to do more and I think more thorough post-strike analysis uh, of what happened, especially when there are claims of civilian casualties, to take those claims more seriously than the U.S. military currently takes them, which is not at all, and to to assess uh, when things have gone wrong, uh, what happened. Now, is any of this actually going to come to pass? Who knows? Uh, but there is a good piece by friend of uh, American prestige, Samuel Moyne, uh, in Responsible Statecraft uh, that uh, they published on Wednesday. Um, basically lambasting this is just another way of kind of trying to put a happy face on war, which has his, uh, been his theme for, for some time now, kind of minimizing the uh, at least public um, perception that war is, is bad and, and you know, making, you know, making it okay to continue the never-ending war on terror, for example. Well, on that happy note, Derek, thank you so much. Everyone enjoy our interview this week, and we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye.